Hello and welcome to V&A Dundee. We're an international design museum showcasing the brilliance of Scottish creativity and the best of design from around the world. The following audio was recorded live at V&A Dundee as part of our public programme. If you'd like to come along to our next event, head over to the website for details. Hi everyone, I'm Dean. Uh, thanks very much for having me. It's great uh, to be hosted by the V&A. Thanks to the team for organising it and thanks to everyone for coming to the talk. I'm a product designer by training. Uh, I studied in Dundee and I make products a little bit like this. I also make installation pieces a little bit like this. And increasingly, I'm working on uh, site-specific interior projects also. Something that underpins everything regardless of scale is uh, dedication to sort of working with materials and using those materials at the service of some kind of communication. It's quite often difficult to really sort of define uh, exactly what you do in your own words. So I'm going to borrow this quote by James Laughlin, who wrote this about my work uh, in Icon magazine in 2017. And I think it's quite a fitting sort of summary of the kind of work that I like to do. It's really characterized by traveling around quite a lot, starting in Dundee. Now I'm based in London, uh, but there was kind of interesting sort of European stuff in between. And I think to sort of understand my practice designer, I need to kind of show you uh, where I've been. So it really starts here at DJ CADS. For anyone who's studying there just now, it's uh, really amazing. Uh, I had such a good time there. I studied a course uh, called product design and my graduation piece was this. It's called the table with a view and it's an augmented bedside table and it allows you to wake up to a view that is different from that of your own bedroom. Uh, and it does that by uh, communicating with wireless cameras and those uh, can be positioned in your neighborhood you could hang it on your washing line you could have it in a field nearby and by sort of like communicating with this camera the screen on your bedside table kind of provides a vista into a kind of remote window that is different from your immediate surroundings and you could put it on a bird table uh, for example you could film your breakfast uh, while you're sort of sleeping in the next room. And really this was uh, something that involved sort of getting involved with technology, hacking stuff, prototyping stuff, really attempting to make something that actually worked and then testing it out with people. It was underpinned by uh, an interest in translating CCTV technology, technology that's often associated with privacy, with surveillance, and thinking how can you kind of recontextualize that technology to do something that's more about well-being. After I graduated, I was invited to stay in Dundee in a position called designer in residence at the art school. This is my little studio, and I was sitting next to this guy here, Andrew Cook. It was really good fun, and uh, we had such a good time there. I was kind of in a situation where I could like have my own studio, but also be incubated within the university. So I had a kind of protection. I got like a use of all the facilities and stuff. So it was a really nice, um, good couple of years there. I worked on projects with friends, collaborators, iPod speakers. You're old enough to remember iPods. And also lighting uh, mixed with kind of music installations with Andrew, other things with other friends. And it was really a period that uh, kind of was underpinned by designing with technology. I realized that at the time, you can sort of really start to design with technology on your own terms. Like technology is a material and you can play with it in different ways. You know, I'm not a coder, I'm not necessarily into Arduino and things like that. I'm not traditionally a technologist. It's really nice to think that you can, you can do what you want with technology. 
I suppose the second step uh, was really sort of relocating to Italy after my time in Dundee. And I was in residence at a place called Fabrica in Treviso. And one of the things you notice about Fabrica is that it's a really incredible uh, building. It's uh, an old Italian villa, and it's been renovated by the Japanese architect, Ado Ando. Uh, so you have this collision of kind of old traditional Italian mixed with this kind of concrete, glass, underground bunker. It's quite a special place. I was in residence in the design team uh, on the left there. So there's me with uh, sort of friends and peers. Uh, we were mainly product designers, also graphic designers, a photographer, studio manager, and the design director at the time was a guy called Sam Baron. Uh, there was other departments at Fabrica as well. You could go there and study music. You could be part of a magazine team. They had a magazine called Colors Magazine. And there was other things like graphic design department, video department, uh, and a very, very international group of people. I think everyone had to be under 25 to apply, so it was a similar experience to doing a master's, for example, but you were much more kind of in charge of your own projects, and it was something uh, close to a residency period as well. It, based in Veneto, uh, the area of Italy that we were in, we had like so many amazing uh, workshops on our doorstep. We could work with ceramicists, glassmakers, all sorts of interesting people. And then I was using that to make uh, my own products uh, and really starting to sort of find a design language that I liked. So making bowls, lighting products, tableware, storage boxes, uh, wind vanes, moving into more sort of graphic textile objects, and then sort of going even further in sort of strange directions. So uh, I collaborated with my friend and co-resident Philip Bone, and we designed this thing called the Mobile Museum. And the Mobile Museum is really hoping to be everything that a museum is, but very small and sort of very flexible in the way that it can travel. We made it all the way to Beijing. This is in Beijing in 2012. Uh, so it traveled, I think, sort of six or seven places over a few years. It was a really successful project for us. An interesting fact about the Mobile Museum is it has its origins in Dundee. So the structure that inspired it was this, and this is something that I found at the recycling center. Uh, in like 2000 and, I don't know, 2004. And then it became, the Mobile Museum became the theme of a conference like last year in Dundee as well, the Gide conference, uh, where I gave a keynote. So it's kind of come back to Dundee as, a, as an idea that was then inspiring sort of workshops and discussions. Also at Fabrica, I was working as part of a team designing stuff for United Colors of Benetton. Benetton was the funding company of Fabrica. So we got to do of interesting interior retail experiences for them. And we also made a pop-up store in New York all about wool. This was really the period where I managed to discover who I was as a designer through just doing lots and lots of projects. And if you're studying design, I think you know the more projects that you can do, you just inevitably sort of start to find, find a voice, find a language. Uh, it doesn't necessarily need to be something that you write down, but just you know, do as much as you possibly can to start to sort of figure out who you are as a designer. Uh, I relocated in 2014 to London to set, set up my own studio. And now I'm going to fast forward to more recent projects. So projects that have happened in the last year or so. Uh, so one was uh, working with the Google Creative Lab. They invited me to uh, have a look at this software experiment that they had. And the basic premise was that you could do a drawing and with very sophisticated 
machine learning algorithms. It would pair your drawing with lots of paintings throughout history or lots of artworks generally throughout history that were reminiscent of the drawing that you made. Uh, so Google, as you know, are really good at search. So they were sort of leveraging that search capacity to make comparisons between drawings that you were doing and basically the, the history of art. A really like, strong, impressive uh, thing to have. And they wanted to get me on board to try and make it into something that had physicality. And in doing so, it would become something that was a lot more kind of engaging people. So we ended up working on something that became uh, what we're calling the digital easel. Um, and it's very reminiscent of the classic painter's easel. But of course, instead of a canvas, you have this kind of touchscreen. And we changed the, the material palette from wood to powder coated steel. It's height adjustable. It does a lot of things that a traditional easel would do. Uh, the big kind of blocky bit at the bottom, that's where the computers and fans and sort of fancy stuff goes. And then you've got a, a wooden cup in the middle where you have a stylus for drawing. It's made in a very similar way to making a bicycle. It's folded tubular steel, powder coated, and then we used little aspects of hardwood as a nod to the traditional painter's easel. We created it in uh, sort of very classic Google colorways, bold primary colors. And we used it, uh, first of all, at an event in Paris. They have a uh, Google Arts and Culture space there. Um, and it's a really good thing uh, for kids especially. Such a powerful idea to just draw a little doodle and then you can see like, all the artists uh, throughout history who've kind of had a similar starting point. So it's, it's somehow kind of very naive, but also very powerful at the same time. It's a really nice thing to try. And during the event, there was a documentation of the, all the drawings that people had, had made previously. And this really sort of reaffirms my belief that I think technology is at its most interesting when we think beyond the screen. You know, when you pair the screen with, with kind of physical design, and it, it becomes a lot more engaging and you know, certainly interesting for me. And it's really nice to think that a company like Google were also thinking along the same lines. Uh, this is uh, a recent project for Depop. Uh, Depop is a, a sort of quite a new company. I don't know if anyone knows it. It's uh, a very successful app, and it's a way to sell your secondhand clothes online. So it's a little bit like the functionality of eBay in terms of the selling aspect, but you also have the sort of social presence aspect of Instagram there as well. So you're not only selling your clothes, you're selling your kind of self-image uh, alongside your clothes. Uh, they have a large um, office space in Shoreditch in London. There's about 100 people working here. This is their global headquarters. And they sort of moved into it in a hurry. And this is the reception area. So this is the first thing that you see when you come in the door. And it's a really sort of underwhelming, quite impermanent, ad hoc solution. And my brief was basically to rethink the, the entrance area so that it had much more of a brand presence. I redesigned it to be very predominantly this kind of strong red, uh, much cleaner, much simpler, much more organized. Red is their main brand color, as you've seen, and I was pairing that with kind of touch points of black. Uh, it's made of simple powder-coated steel and hardwoods on the edges. 
Uh, one thing that I was uh, seeing when I was researching this project was that there was just like so many of these packages coming and going. And you know, Depop's like main main thing is that you're basically exchanging clothing on a peer-to-peer -peer basis. Uh, so virtually everyone in the office was a user of their own service. It was really significant to what they do as a company that these packages would be sort of arriving on a daily basis and coming in, uh, sorry, going out on a daily basis and coming in on a daily basis. We created something uh, called the packing station, which is a, a, a very sort of dedicated space where you can prepare your clothes, uh, put them inside uh, the, the packaging, label it and send it out. And it's not so kind of like surprising that you'd have a packing station in a big office. But what I think is quite unique here is that we were really celebrating that, something that was in the entrance space of their corporate headquarters. It's an object or a piece of furniture that really starts to kind of tell you a lot about who they are as a company. And the, the sort of companion piece to that is the outbox. And that's really the first thing you see when you enter the space now is all of their kind of products coming and going. Uh, and it was just a really nice way to tell the Depop story uh, through quite practical means. I also designed a bookshelf. Uh, they have lots of rare and interesting fashion editorials. Uh, so if you're kind of arriving in the space, sitting in reception, you can start to tune into the kind of things that they're into. And then also like uh, some very practical storage spaces to declutter the whole area. And finally, I made my first chair or stool. So I'm really happy with my first attempt at seating, which would sit normally next to the packing station. Here are some renderings. So this is like one way that I would uh, present my work to a client during the project. So it's a way to sort of reveal a little bit of process. Yeah, and here is about uh, thinking about brand placemaking that could go hand in hand with usefulness. Normally, when you think about brand placemaking in a corporate headquarters, you probably be imagining like a really stupid, big, fancy chandelier or like, you know, something like very kind of like status, but not particularly useful. And I like the idea that you could sort of have brand placemaking that was kind of very closely connected with quite practical things. Uh, so I'm quite proud of putting those two things together. Another place that I really like to go often is a place called Hollenegg in Austria. And uh, in this case, it was for a project called Sometimes Kitchen. Uh, this is Alice. She is the curator and custodian of uh, this like, amazing castle in the middle of nowhere in Austria. And she invites young up-and-coming designers to create site-specific designs for this historical setting. And then she has an exhibition every May where uh, quite a few of the rooms in the castle have like a contemporary design intervention. I've worked with Alice on quite a few projects. Uh, this is a previous tableware project. And then I also made a display system called the Archive and the Rumpel Camera. On this occasion, she was asking me to have a look at this kitchen area. And it's quite a particular part of the castle. This is where if you were a resident, you would go there and stay for a few weeks. Uh, it's in a turret, so you sort of get your own turret. It's quite nice. and. So it's, it's, it's in use sometimes, but then often it's not a kitchen that you use every day. And then for like catering and parties, it sometimes becomes an important thing. But we talked a lot about the idea that whenever it was useful, it needed to be a proper kitchen. But then also when it wasn't needed, it would be good if it could kind of not be a kitchen anymore. 
there was a lot of drawings and ideas around this idea of sort of transforming a cabinet and like opening and closing techniques. And what this is the final design, sometimes kitchen in its sort of closed modes. And then you can swing open this door and that becomes like a kind of space dividing thing. Door within the door becomes like a service hatch or a small kind of breakfast bar. And then the other door cantilevers open in the vertical way with uh, a counterweight. So there's the, that's how it goes. Uh, you can see that you've got like quite a lot of kind of openings and closings on the insides. Uh, and there was, there, was, there was kind of historical frescoes and like wall markings and interesting features in the room that had to be kind of seen and respected. There was lots of cutaways within the kitchen to allow you to see that. And it's quite nice to have an, like an open top so it doesn't feel very enclosed. Here's some renderings. You can see a little bit better the intention to have a, something a bit like a breakfast bar there. And for this, I was researching doors. There's like lots of like very interesting examples of like features and details and how doors open in the castle. And the one on the bottom right became the, the inspiration for the surface texture of the kitchen. I like the idea that you could create a grid and then you could punctuate that grid in certain places with, with handles. And because each door opened in a different way, uh, the handle would be in a different position. And that would kind of give you a clue as to how to open and close different parts. Another th interesting thing about this is that it was made about half a kilometer from the castle. Uh, so I would like walk through the forest to Erwin uh, Pretel's workshop. He's a very good cabinet maker if you need to get anything made in the middle of nowhere in Austria. Uh, this kitchen is now in use, so I get emails sometimes from uh, designers who are now kind of like cooking pasta there or like hanging their dish towels like all over the outside of it. I don't think I included like a dish towel rack, maybe I should have. <laughs> and you know, in some respects, like this became like a very imaginative project that I'm really happy with, but the constraints were extreme. It was just like kitchen, you know, what do you do with the kitchen? And like also it wasn't like a massive budget or anything like that. So I had to work with like very basic materials and I had to sort of be quite imaginative about how to do stuff within super tight constraints. You should try to embrace the constraints of your project. And in this case, the constraint was very much, it needs to be sometimes a kitchen and then sometimes not a kitchen. And I took that sort of kernel of an idea and tried to do something quite fun with it. Uh, this is an, another type of project. So those, like up until now, it's been about uh, my personal projects within my studio. Also. Another part of my time, I, I work within a team at Goldsmiths University at the Interaction Research Studio. I'm a part-time research fellow there. And we are like a really sort of big bunch of, sort of interesting people, um, product designers, creative technologists, professors, PhD students, uh, social scientists, uh, studio manager, you know, a real mix of disciplines and approaches. Uh, and we have been working collectively for a few years with also another team at the Royal College of Arts on this thing called My Nature Watch. Uh, and at the core of My Nature Watch is a special camera that is designed for filming wildlife. And it's a DIY camera. So we have a website where you can find the ingredients and the recipe for how to make your own camera. It's about 40 pounds and the threshold of skill to make it is really, really low. So I would encourage anyone here to give it a go if you want to try and make your own camera. It's really good fun. Uh, one of the special things about it is that it has uh, an app that allows you to control the camera remotely uh, from your phone or from your laptop. 
uh, you can change the lighting, you can change uh, different sort of camera orientations, and you can download all the photographs. Also, we're working currently on a beta version that has video. This is the kind of photography you can expect to get. Uh, and now we have a huge community of people uh, nationally and somewhat internationally using these cameras. Uh, it was on Springwatch, so it's been endorsed by Chris Packham on Springwatch. And then since then, we've had this like huge kind of like response to, to the use. Uh, so earlier last year, uh, we were approached by Brompton Design District to make a commission uh, for London Design Festival uh, in this place called Alexander Square Gardens, which is around the corner from the other v &A. And it's uh, a garden space. Uh, this is the garden. And we, we, we were invited to do something here, like something with cameras here. And we, it was quite an open brief. This garden is a private garden. It's like a really fancy area of like... West London. It's a little bit like the garden when Hugh Grant and uh, Julia Roberts like go in this garden in Notting Hill. I don't know if anyone remembers this bit, but it's a bit like that garden. It's like really like not a garden you're meant to go in, but you can like look over the fence and, and, and see into it. We had this kind of brief that we gave to ourselves, which, which was we wanted to emphasize the entanglement between humans and other animals in urban areas. Uh, we wanted to design something for animals as users primarily, and then secondary, the secondary kind of use case was the human audience. So animals first, humans second. Uh, we wanted to use DIY methods because this is very much the spirit of the, the My Nature Watch project to inspire others to do similar things to what we were doing. And we were sort of briefed and we were interested in working primarily with natural materials. The first thing that we did was we sort of reinterpreted the cameras uh, using, if you're thinking about like a biodegradable DIY housing for a camera, then fruit and vegetables is actually quite good. And then we juxtaposed that with the sort of recycled man-made elements. So there's like, there's this kind of collision of the, the natural and the man-made in a way that feels very sort of DIY-esque. And then we introduced those cameras into settings. So these are almost a bit, a bit like uh, film sets or architectures where birds could, uh, they could dwell, they could eat, they could drink, have a bath. And we made lots and lots of these using super simple construction techniques, branches, coconuts, etc., etc. And then sometimes the camera was embedded within the installations and then sometimes the camera was separate. So they were, they were like photo studios and all designed for animals using what well, in the brief from Brompton they had this idea of like the animal vernacular so it was it was a design language that was appealing to animals rather than to us uh, one thing that they talked about was they found it very strange that bird houses always looked like little human houses uh, and that's a very sort of human-centric perspective on designing for animals uh, whereas if you think about the animals perspective then they don't really care if it's got like a pointed roof or not here is uh, some of the installations in situ in Alexander Square Gardens. We're calling this Nature Scenes, by the way. So this is a sort of spin-off project. And some of them were tree hanging. A lot of them were nestled in, in bushes, like in, in sort of secret places, the kind of places where animals like to go. They had food sources within them. Orange peel is a really good thing to attract certain insects. And then we made our own special fat balls, which we cast in 3D printed molds. 
pumpkins are very good. If you're trying to make like animal architecture, then you can do a lot of different things with pumpkins, including night vision cameras. And uh, Brompton had this really good wayfinding system. You know, a lot of this stuff was not necessarily easy to find. It was it was positioned for animals rather than positioned for human visitors. So they had these like red dots and, and really nice kind of clues as to where you should look for these installations. And this is a kind of typical example of them sort of really sitting densely within the undergrowth. Uh, sometimes the camera wasn't uh, filming in a conventional way, like in this case, it was pointing down the way. So we tried to do different sort of novel perspectives on, on the animals. And here's some of the footage. Uh, we, we had this in situ for about two weeks and we had you know, literally like thousands and thousands of images. So this is a collection of like mice, squirrels. A squirrel's like holding a stick, which worries me a little bit. Uh, blackbirds, great tits, insects, mice, more squirrels, robins. That's a blue jay. Uh, that one was really good. And you know, these are, these are quite conventional animals. We're not, we're not seeing anything we didn't expect to see. But I think what is charming is that you're seeing them Secretly, you're, you're, you're getting a glimpse of what they're doing when no one's watching, which is a really sort of special perspective to have. So this is uh, the one that was filming down the way, and it was you know, a period of a few hours one afternoon. Also, we had a companion venue, which was opposite the garden, and it happened to be an hourglass, the Hourglass pub. It's a pub, and we were invited to make uh, a Nature Watch takeover of the pub. So the footage that I'm showing you, we were broadcasting that on the pub TV. We had this like animal diorama above the bar. And within that diorama, you had examples of how to make your own camera. So you could sit in the pub and sort of start to understand how you might make your own version of our cameras. And on the back of the beer mat, you had instructions for how to do so. And it was this quite sort of strange, nice parallel between the idea of, sort of people sitting, drinking, relaxing in their own natural habitats, watching animals sitting, drinking, relaxing in their own natural habitats. And you know, this, this really sort of was a project that allowed us to start thinking about design as something that should and must be bigger than us. It, it's, you know, with the backdrop of the climate emergency, it's really important, I think, to be mindful of like wildlife and the environment in general. And, it's certainly a project that's sort of beckoned in that kind of thinking more so for me. London is, I think, on the status of becoming a national park. It has this, it, it means that they're sort of recognising that not only are animals there, there's like so many animals in London that it has national park labelling, but then also it means that they, are, they have rights, they're welcome to be there rather than just, just kind of considered pests or, or, or whatever. They're, they're coexisting with us. Uh, this is the last project, uh, and it's also uh, a project that I'm involved with at Goldsmiths, and it is called Sunglasses for Puffins. Uh, to introduce this, I really need to introduce this guy called Jamie Dunning. He is an ornithologist. He's a friend and collaborator. Uh, he works with us a lot on any sort of like animal consultations in our Nature Watch project. And Jamie uh, has this kind of UV light thing. Like a lot of ornithologists, he has a light. And the reason why he has this light is that birds and other animals see in UV. So if you want to approximate how they see each other, you shine these lights on specimen animals. 
And what I mean by a specimen animal is a deceased animal that has died of natural causes. It's a very sort of normal kind of respectful thing within the ornithology community to study specimens before you study live animals. So you're about to see a specimen puffin. Jamie basically uh, was the first person to sort of fully ask questions about this uh, phenomenon that we know as now as photoluminescence in the bill of the Atlantic puffin. So this is how puffins see each other and they've got this amazing phosphorescent glow in their beaks. And there was all sorts of questions about, you know, what is this? And is it for group communication? Do they all have different beak patterns? Is it for feeding their young? Is it a way to, does the, does the young puffin recognize the specific beak of the mother and go to that beak whenever it's hungry? Is it about mating rituals? Does the, the alpha male puffin have the fanciest bill? Or is it something else entirely? We don't know. And the only way to begin to find out is to uh, sort of carefully, sensitively shine UV lights on live puffins in their natural habitat and make observations about what that would be. Hence, we will at some point need sunglasses for puffins. So this is the kind of emails that I get from Jamie. Uh, sunglasses for puffins. Hey Dean, I was chatting to Andy today about a project we have on, the one with the glowing puffins. So Jamie basically asked me to work on designing uh, uh, sunglasses to put on the puffins to, uh, to be worn by puffins in field studies with UV light involved. He sent me drawings of kind of ideas about how something would happen on a puffin's face. Uh, I started cutting out templates of very early iterations of the glasses. I would kind of was basing a lot of them on sort of human sunglasses and sort of quite naively trying out different things. I would post them to Nottingham. Jamie would put them on his specimen puffin in his lab, and he would then like sort of like tailor them. There was a kind of conversation going backwards and forwards, uh, and we we basically at this at this point in time, like Jamie put this on Twitter. And like it generated almost like 44,000 conversations on Reddit <laughs> and it made it onto the Canadian news. <laughs> and we hadn't even really designed the glasses yet. These were like very sort of early prototypes. It was crazy. And, you know, they, they have been used in field trials, the real ones, uh, but I don't have any photographs. Like, sorry guys, I really don't have any photographs of puffins like wearing sunglasses as of yet. So I made an illustration of what it would look like. And the, the, the final design ended up being something that was kind of very kind of like quickly rested on the, on the, on the beak. It seems kind of logical to me that they would like attach on or something like that. And the more we discussed it, the more it was about like something that would be like the most unobtrusive. Uh, so this is why they became almost like these kind of matrix glasses that just like sit on the nose. There's like nothing behind it. And the little kind of like semicircles on the outsides that's where you would sort of, you would kind of hold, hold it on the puffin sort of very quickly, make some observations and then take it away again. The process of designing these, it's really about cutting out lots of different silhouettes and materials on a laser cutter, uh, experimenting with different nose bridges, experimenting with different ways to hold it, putting these together in different combinations, and then finally settling on uh, a final design, uh, which has a foam, foam nose protector on the outside. It has a ripstop nylon 
outer surface, which is uh, water repellent. It has a soft, comfortable kind of foam core center. And it has an aluminum bridge within this sandwich that allows it to be slightly bendy. Uh, so you can bend it a little bit round Puffin's face. This is the final design in different colorways. And this, this, the design of these glasses have enabled research that is now an academic paper called Photoluminescence in the Bill of the Atlantic Puffin. It's the kind of academic acknowledgement of this discovery. Uh, and it's written by Jamie and a whole bunch of co-authors, including myself. This research is really ongoing and uh, it is to be continued. Thanks everyone, thanks for listening. And if you've got any questions, Thank you for listening. You can find more stories and resources on our website at vam.ac.uk forward slash Dundee. That's vam.ac.uk forward slash Dundee.